0: Thanks, Johnny. Men's Breakfast has been a big blessing for me. I've known Johnny for a long time and volunteered with him. And this event, to be have the chance to speak to you guys today, and a lot of you, maybe half of you I know, half of you I don't. A little intimidating being on stage with 100 people staring at you. Uh, not what I'm used to, but definitely honored to be here. I've got a few special guests with me today. Um, as Johnny mentioned, I'm... Uh, Blessed to be able to be involved with a group of guys called Mountain Men, and a childhood friend of mine, a guy I met when I was 12 years old and still best friends with today. We started sharing the mountains with, with other guys a few years ago. We've always went, but it's something we're passionate about and been able to leverage and help other guys really find a closer relationship with Christ. You know, essentially our mission statement, what we're all about with Mountain Men is helping men become better men. And what we've seen God do is faithfully impact and change families, you know, one man at a time. It's been just a joy to be a part of. If you're a previous past mountain man guy or one going on a trip, just raise your hand so I can see who we've got here today. Man, good turnout. A few over here. Got a few other special guests. Uh, There's three guys here today that I met when I was in sixth grade that are still dear friends of mine today. Um, Lee, Derek, and Paul, I think you're on this side of the room. Um, thank you guys so much for being here and your support. You know, I've been fortunate enough to go to the mountains with these guys when I was a young boy and continue to go with them today and been a part of a lot of ups and downs in our lives, but it's been a, a, a true blessing. And then uh, two others, one or two other Dans here today. One is my dad. He's in the back corner of the room, Dan Job. Thanks for coming today, Dad. Love you. And another one's Dan Oski. Dan's sitting in a wheelchair right over here on the side of the room. Um, some of you know Dan, some of you don't. He's a dear friend of mine, volunteered and been a part of, critical part of Church on the Move for a long, long time. And uh, the effort it takes for Dan and his family, for him to leave the house, I guarantee you he was the, <laughs> up the earliest before any of us this morning, and his wife and, and help. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate that. Let's pray and we'll get started. Dear Father in heaven, uh, just thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to speak to men that are hungry for more God. Father, I pray that you'll help me clearly communicate what you've laid on my heart today, Lord, and share my story. Father, we love you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I was uh, getting ready to turn 16 years old, I took all the cash I had and all the cash my parents would give me and bought a 1987 Chevy Blazer. Pretty sweet ride, um, high mileage, a um, few door dings here and there, but I spent the next year taking every ounce of free time and money I could make and put into this Blazer. And it became one of the sweetest rides in Tulsa. Rims, tires, I personally put know nothing about cars and put a lowering kit on this thing. Um, my stepdad at the time painted hot rods and put a fade job on the blazer, tinted the windows. The sound system wasn't much, but I did put a sound system in it. And um, the point of that was I thought I would arrive. I mean, I thought this, this is what it's about. This is going to, the dates, the, the popularity, the satisfaction was going to be there and of course, you guys probably know the end of this story. The second year of owning the car, I rebuilt the engine, rebuilt the transmission. The back glass shattered because of the lowering kit I installed when I went over a set of railroad tracks in West Tulsa. <laughs> and black back glasses on blazers are not very cheap. Um, essentially, it became a rust bucket, a money pit, something pretty, pretty worthless. You know, something I thought was going to be a little more fulfilling than that, wasn't fulfilling at all. And I, I take my car to really good people that work on them today and don't touch one thing after that experience. But what's frustrating is I'm pretty stubborn, not a very quick learner. I entered my adult life with a very similar philosophy, um, thought I knew what I wanted and what was important, and, and was really hungry for those things. You know, I, I, uh, I'm blessed. You know, I've had a lot, of, a lot of hard things come my way, but really blessed through my 20s. I believed God, prayed, worked hard for a lot of good things, got married to an incredible woman of God, had at that time two boys, had bought and lived in the biggest house I'd ever lived in in my life, owned nice cars, honestly had my dream job at 29 years old. Maybe I just didn't dream big enough, but I worked for a leading oil and gas company. I'd had an engineering degree and was in upper management and just had thought I had arrived I mean, I really had accomplished everything I'd set out to do and with God's help. Um, and I, I felt like I'd asked God for some really big things. The problem is, uh, it wasn't satisfying. You know, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Although they were good things, they really didn't answer what I was searching for, really what my heart and soul were looking for. And it was a tough... Um, realization, and I really didn't know what to do. I was plugged in here at church on the move. One of the power servers um, had a great relationship with God. Spent time with God. Was passionate about it. But I stumbled across verse that we all know in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven at that time, and it, it basically says the most important thing we can do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Don't get me wrong. I think all of you, you wouldn't be here at 6.45 in the morning if you didn't love God. I loved God, but I coveted accomplishment, and I thought I was going to find and unlock some secrets to life, some success, the purpose of my life by accomplishing some really good things, and those things just weren't satisfying. You know, you may be similar to me. You may be here today and have accomplished a lot. You've arrived wherever you are in life, or you may not. You may be believing God for some really big things. You may be frustrated that they haven't come true yet. But just pretend with me here for a few minutes that God answers all the questions, all the expectations you have today, just like that. Would it really provide what you're looking for? Would it satisfy you? Would it fulfill you? There, they may be good things. You may be believing for a wife this perfect house, the dream job, elite fitness, whatever those things may be, and they're really good things. But I'd, I'm going to step out on a limb and say for most of us, what we're asking God for, it doesn't really answer the question we have in our heart and our soul. That satisfaction, that completeness, that confidence, that understanding of our purpose in Christ. You know, I'm sitting on the doorstep of 30 and thinking, man, I don't want the next 30 years of my life to be the same. And it wasn't that I was disappointed, um, I, was, I was happy, I just wasn't satisfied. You know, in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this whole Sermon on the Mount is really what it's about, it's Jesus, three chapters of essentially solid red letters. There's a few verses in these chapters that just completely changed the trajectory of my life, and that's what I really want to focus on and talk about with you guys or share with you guys today. You know, it says in Matthew 5, 1, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. You know, that was mind-blowing to me. I'd always went to the mountains, but I'd never seen the mountains in the Word. When you look through the Old and New Testament, and specifically Jesus' ministry, God uses the mountains all throughout the Bible. This really put an emphasis on I mean, I really think the beginning, I think Lee would agree, really the beginning of us turning a boyhood trip to the mountains into you know, what today is, a, I hate to call it this, a, people call it a ministry. I mean, it's, it's really just what we do and we get to share it with other people. But just this realization of how important the mountains are to God and how significant they are throughout the Word. What's really tough is the two chapters following that verse for me. God says, or Jesus says, some really challenging things, some things that are possibly impossible. He says things like, uh, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, offer up your left. He says, talks about fasting, talks about generosity, says, if you lust after a woman with your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. Um, Tells us not to judge, not to worry. You know, it's a pretty... Those things kind of take me out at the knees because I don't naturally do a lot of those things well, or maybe I do them well, but do them on the wrong side of well. What he, what he did do, though, is he left just a, a gem in kind of the last chapter of Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew 7, 7 and 8, and it's a verse that I think most of us, probably all of us have heard or know, and it says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. You know, I have a -a two-and-a-half-year-old girl, her name's Eleanor. She knows how to knock, she knows how to play hide-and-seek, and and she knows how to ask. Boy, she asked, last night I'm sitting on the couch after a long week of traveling, Daddy, Daddy, will you come upstairs with me? No, I want to watch the NBA Finals. Of course I go upstairs. She's not a very good hider, but she definitely loves finding me, and she's a good knocker. She knocks things over all the time, but that's kind of how I viewed this verse from when I was a child sitting in children's church to about 10 years ago. Asking, seeking, and knocking, I do those things. I'm good, but in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what I would suggest to you is this means something far more profound than simply asking, seeking, and knocking. You know, for me, I was uh, born in Sand Springs. Um, we moved around a little bit as a kid, but by the time I started kindergarten, we ended up back in the Tulsa area in Sand Springs and had a charmed life. My, my um, mom stayed home with us for the most part. My dad had a good job. Parents loved me, have two younger sisters, came home from school at 12 years old, sixth grade, and got off the bus in front of the house, and my dad's car was in the driveway. And it was... At that point, a really good day. Dad wasn't home from work before 5.30 often, but I knew this was going to be fun. Walk in the house with my sister's parents, sit us down and let us know that they're getting a divorce. And at 12, I was extremely naive, had a storybook childhood. I really didn't know what that meant. And come to find out, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to really process it. See, my parents are great people. Close with both of them today. My dad's here today. They love me. They did an excellent job, but the marriage didn't work out. And as a 12-year-old, you know, my childhood drastically changed at that moment. For whatever reason, I was hurt, upset, mad, felt some guilt. Many of you have been through divorce and understand what I'm talking about. But I think the biggest change for me was I immediately felt no one put this pressure on me, but this responsibility to take care of my sisters. And I really, a lot of the things that I had enjoyed about being a kid, no worry, no stress, um, that kind of flipped on me, and I really wasn't prepared for it. And it was really something, uh, you know, attack from the devil, something I put on myself. But life changed that day, and in a, in a pretty significant way. You know, fortunately for me, as God always does, he had a plan a couple weeks later, We really weren't that welcome back at the church we had been attending because of these set of circumstances, and we tried a new church. Showed up at Osage Hills Christian Church in West Tulsa, and walked into the fifth and sixth grade Sunday school class and met Lee Martin. And little did we know, we became best friends in about two weeks, and still best of friends today. And not just Lee, but Paul, Derek, a number of other guys over the the following years, good group of friends. And and honestly, I've been fortunate enough to be in a small group since I was 12 years old with other men pursuing similar things to what I'm pursuing and helping me along the way. And if it wasn't for that, man, would I be in such a bind. But they helped me navigate some really tough things uh, at a really tough time in my life. And and we continue to do that for each other today, which is just uh, mind-blowing, incredible. What that led to, though, was our youth group uh, was able to go to the mountains in the early 1990s on a backpacking trip, and I'd never even been to Colorado before. And boy, did that rock my world. Um, the mountains were intriguing, wanted to move there, uh, just mind-blowing. And we really just never quit going. Um, through college, as we became adults or tried to become adults, we just couldn't stay away from the mountains. It got to a point where we had to have some a reason for going, really. You know, our wives, started have, we started having babies, and uh, it wasn't just convenient for anyone for us to get away for a week to the mountains, so we really had to find a reason why. And that's what I love about God is he can leverage some of the things you're most passionate about to do incredible things in your life. You know, what God started showing us with the parallels between summiting mountains and walking with Christ are just endless and I, I'm going to share a few of those stories with you today. But the most important thing that happened was really God allowing me to start seeing this verse in Matthew 7, 7, and 8 a little differently. To deliberately and persistently ask, and seek, and knock. And I know those things, those things sound simple, and I want to dive into them for just a brief moment. You know, it says, everyone who asks, receives. In this audience, you know, Johnny, I think, said there's 130 RSVPs this morning. I believe there's 130 guys in here that are asking God questions. You wouldn't be here today if you weren't looking for answers. And, man, you're on the right track. The challenge is, for all of us, me included, is are we asking God the right questions? We went to climb a mountain last year and took a team, most of the team fairly newbies, climbed a 14 close to a 14,500-foot peak. The tallest mountains in the lower 48 are between 14,000 and 14,500 feet. There's a number of them in the Colorado Rockies. Rainier is a glacier in the northwest that's, that's above 14,000. But, I mean, when you talk about getting within 100 feet of the highest point in the lower 48 states, it's, it's a game-changer. As we were hiking to our base camp, one of the first-timers looked at the summit in the backdrop that looked impressive, pointed to it and asked, what's the name of that? Is that, is that Crestone? You know, how high is that? And you know, Lee and I kind of looked at each other and, boy, we really don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know that that even has a name. You know, the challenge was that summit was several hundred feet, if not close to 1,000 feet below what we were going to climb. It's just from that vantage point, it looked majestic. It looked impressive. You know, I'd venture to say that I I don't know anyone, know a lot of outdoorsmen, especially in Colorado. You look on a map, it doesn't have a name. I don't know that it's even ever been climbed. The, The critical thing about this is it was a good question. It was a legitimate question. It looked impressive, but it really wasn't, even on the radar screen of why we were there, outside of being something just in the peripheral you know, I think that's what's critical about asking God. Asking God the right questions is what I wasn't doing in my 20s and started doing on the doorstep of 30. You know, asking God questions about uh, being a better father. How do I become the husband you want me to be? What am I supposed to do with the next 30 years of my life? God, what, what did you design me for? I thought Witt said this perfectly in his opening to the series Weights a couple weeks ago when he said he bought the sports car, took it home, wanted to use it as a family car. You know, a sports car can't be a minivan. This goes back to this idea that our creator, your creator, destines or creates your purpose. You know, I worked really hard in my 20s thinking I was on the right track of finding my purpose. It's just not something you stumble across or you find with hard work. You got to ask, you got to seek, you got to knock. Asking God questions that are bigger than things we can do that are bigger than ourselves. It does a couple things. It did a couple things for me. It will do something for you. It sets aside my pride and ego because I'm asking God things that I can't do my, on my own. It, what it also does is it humbles you in front of our, our Lord and our Father. I think the last thing it did for me, and it will do for you, is, it, is it's a little scary. There's some risk involved, much like climbing a 14er, um, it has the potential to change the trajectory of your life in ways you weren't planning for. It may lead you down a completely different path than you thought you were supposed to be on. And when you enter that risk and that humble approach into the equation, it really gives God something, I believe, something to work with. You know, it wasn't until Labor Day 2009 that I really started seeking God. You know, I'd always had my quiet time, even in the doorstep of my 30s. I, you know, was spending more time in the Word and, and praying more than I ever had, but really felt like I was in a little bit of a desert. Lee called that Labor Day, evening of that Labor Day in tears. He was the pastor of a church in Omaha, Nebraska, had just had a skyrocketed career, much like me. His dad pastored our church growing up. Lee got the call to ministry when we were just boys. Derek and Lee and Paul and I were at a Christian conference and saw him respond to that call in his life, and it was undeniable. The challenge is 2007 and 8 were probably the years we were most distant from each other and having the most success in our lives. And Lee had made a series of choices, like we've all been guilty of, that led him down a path of ultimate destruction. He was losing everything. He was in tears. I honestly didn't understand everything he said on the call. All I knew is I needed to get my butt in the car and head to Omaha. And when I got there, it was it was like a tornado had hit. I'd never... He wasn't the same person I knew. He was in a different place. The next Sunday, his dad and I sat on the front row of the church and saw him across their multiple services get up in front of the church, confess what he had done, and resign from his position. Um... Got to see his wife and two boys. Shannon was was done, ready to give up. Unfortunately, most—not all—but most of his friends, mentors, um, he was written off. Kind of committed the cardinal sin—the one thing you shouldn't do as a minister. And over the next few weeks, he packed up his stuff, came back to Tulsa, where he's from, with his tail between his legs, and and really starting over. There wasn't even a foundation. To some extent, to work with, I mean it was just and and just rubbish, you know that really started the process of Lee and I meeting uh, for breakfast, coffee, lunch, sometimes it was just after work in the cab of my truck for fifteen minutes so that he could have enough boldness to walk home and open the door and look Shannon in the eye i mean it was it was brutal, but what it required us to do being back against the wall was to seek God corporately. You see, when we seek God corporately as men, what it ends up with is an individual encounter with God. You know, about a year after that Labor Day, we went to the mountains for the first time with someone that wasn't part of our childhood clique. Lee, Corey Lack, and I went to climb a a very challenging 14-er called Kit Carson. And we drove out there, camped, got to our base camp, Got up at 4 in the morning for a 10 or 12-hour round-trip summit. And we made it. We made it to the top of Kit Carson, one of the probably the toughest 14 I've ever climbed. And it was incredible, emotional. I didn't think Corey was going to get out of the tent the morning of summit day. He was so exhausted. And he somehow, that stubborn son of a gun, clawed his way up to the top of that mountain. What I didn't expect was once we kind of got our wits about us and looked over the backside of the summit, we looked down several hundred feet, and there lay a lifeless body of a guy that had climbed Kit Carson the day before us. He had made it to the summit, but he had down climbed and unfortunately got into a bind and fell to his death. Experienced climber, I think we read he cl- had climbed all the 14ers in Colorado, which is a ridiculous challenge. Uh, knew what he was doing. The challenge is he was alone. And uh, needless to say, when we walked off that summit, every step was very intentional. And every step to and from a summit since then has been different. Perspective dramatically changed. Knew the dangers, but seeing the dangers from the top of a summit was incredible. But this is a critical part to being the one who seeks, finds. See, as men, we're not called to, to seek God alone. You're just called to be the one who seeks, but you don't do that by yourself. And I think as men, we're guilty of it. Lee will tell you the the most challenging thing for him and why he fell was isolation. The devil used some of his biggest strengths with ego to to bring him down. You don't climb a mountain by yourself. The, the, The risk is way too high. You know, to summit mountains, you need all sorts of gear, Water, purification, food, tents. You need guys to help carry that load. Um, You're not all carrying exactly the same thing. Each one has a few essentials, but you're spreading out that responsibility across a lot of guys. There's accountability. There's encouragement. Heck, I've been on trips since I was a teenager and get worn out, exhausted, need some motivation. See a guy in front of you, it inspires you to take another step. Make good decisions when you're dehydrated, when you're famished. You know, it takes a group of guys to be successful and safe at summoning so mountains. And that's just what it takes to seek God. You know, it says in Matthew, in, in the same part of Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew seven thirteen through 14, it says, enter through, the narrow, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. You know, seeking God isn't for the faint of heart. Um, it's, I believe, to find that small gate, to find that narrow road, to be the one who seeks and finds. It's a corporate journey, guys. We've got to have other guys along on that journey with us for accountability, for encouragement. There's several ways you can do that. You're in a room with over 100 guys. These guys in this room at your table are, are seeking the same things you are. If you're bold enough, connect with guys here. You don't have to do breakfast here once a month Johnny, they can go out to breakfast any Friday, right? You know, there's some really low-hanging fruit ways to get involved with small men's small groups here at Church on the Move. There's two iPads on both sides of the room. Our summer semester starts Sunday. Our fall semester starts in mid-August. And we've got a number of men's groups you can get registered for that are covering topics about marriage, finances, weekend services, guys that are seeking what you're seeking. If you're not corporately seeking God with other men, you're missing it, guys. You're missing it. You're setting yourself up for failure trying to do it alone. I would encourage you to get plugged into a small group. You know, for guys that come on Mountain Men, you know, we, don't, we, we really ask one question. No matter where they are in their life or on their spiritual journey, are they asking for more God? Because if they're asking that question and maybe even don't know the answer, man, that's the type of guy I want to be around. That's the type of guy that can encourage me. that's that's seeking what I'm after, extremely powerful. You know, the great thing about seeking God corporately is it truly ends up with an individual encounter with God, much like climbing a mountain. You climb a mountain to get to the summit. When you get to the summit, it's different. When you're at the highest point in the lower 48 states, the highest point in the Rockies where we are, it changes your perspective. You see things a little differently. You see where you stack up in the world, how small I really am. You know, most importantly, when you have an encounter with God, it changes your perspective dramatically and, and really changes your whole life. You know, I don't know anyone with a better perspective than my friend Dan Oski. You know, I mentioned Dan and I have been friends, volunteered together in the children's ministry here for a long time, maybe 10 years and Dan's been a critical part of encouraging me, sharpening me, speaking into mountain men lives. His son-in-law is on a trip for the second time this year, spoken, come to mountain men meetings, and just been an inspiration and encouragement. And this year he wrote a letter, which I hadn't shared with the mountain men yet. Some of you will get to hear it, share it with the others that aren't here soon. But I wanted to share it with you guys today, because it's, it's exactly what we're talking about. Perspective by Dan Diosky, March 26, 2016. I was born in September of 1960 and grew up in a middle-class family in Flint, Michigan. I was the third of four brothers. My mother was a homemaker, and my dad was a brick mason. My childhood was spent playing sports, helping around the house, working with my father and brothers as a brick mason laborer. I never experimented with drugs, smoked tobacco, or drank much alcohol. I exercised regularly, ate in a healthy manner, and tried to do things that would keep my body in good physical shape. Played soccer in college, coached high school soccer later in life, and I worked 25 years as a computer consultant consultant in the healthcare industry. I've been married to my wife, Laura, for 19 years, and I have five children. Volunteered in the church, faithfully gave tithes and offerings, attended service every week. I love my wife and kids, and I was a reliable and dedicated employee. I spent the first 51 years of my life thinking that if I just do the right things, that nothing bad would ever happen to me. God would always bless me, but I was diagnosed with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, February of 2011 at the age of 51. Today when you see me, I'm always in an electric wheelchair. I need this machine to go everywhere. What you don't see is all the care and help that's required to get me in the wheelchair as well as throughout each day. I have no independence in the most basic things that I need to do each day, things such as eating brushing my teeth, making a phone call, using the restroom, getting dressed, taking a shower, or even getting in and out of bed require help from someone. Your perspective on my situation may be to feel sorry for me, think I might be bitter or angry at God, or you may want to avoid me because being around you makes you uncomfortable, or maybe you think I should feel hopeless in this disease. You couldn't be more wrong. My perspective is that ALS really does suck. However, and it does. My perspective is that God is able to work through it and in it for my good, and he has. I won't lie. Some days are harder than others, but my hope is in Christ. He has met all my needs during this time in my life, and I know I will live eternally in his presence healed and whole. During this time of my life, I've learned what true faith is and how to completely trust God. I find joy in my life and see miracles around me all the time. As a husband and father, our perspective may be that our wife is needy and nagging and never satisfied with anything we do. We may also see our children as undisciplined, ungrateful, and always wanting something from us. On the other hand, our wife's perspective may be that we're distant, not helpful with the kids or at the house or overly critical of them just like many people have the wrong perspective of my situation with ALS, I wish for you to not have the wrong perspective with your own family. Albert Einstein said, there are only two ways to live your life. One, as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is a miracle. I'm confident that if you look at your wife and kids as a miracle and a blessing from God, you will treat them differently, give them more grace. Where you've considered your family a burden, you'll now see them as a blessing. Thank you, Dan. So powerful and, re- and really hits home for me personally, but I hope you guys understand that Dan's been diagnosed with ALS, not given much time to live. He, I, his family believe he's going to walk out of that chair healed and hold. The thing is, to some, hard for us to understand, easy for Dan to explain to me it matters to him because he's, if he were to die tomorrow, what he would be leaving behind would be painful for them. But what Dan knows is he's got a peace, a relationship with Christ. He's consistently asking, seeking, and knocking, and he knows that he wins either way. He knows the end of the story, and he's completely comfortable with his faith in Christ that we see the evidence here on earth or he spends eternity in heaven with God. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around because I get pissed off that he's in that wheelchair. I get upset when someone wrongs me or when my wife makes a bad decision. But when you have an interaction with God, when you have a, a meeting or an encounter with God, it does change your perspective. And men, we need that. I need that. You need that. You know, lastly, it's, it's important to be a door knocker. You know, last month it would be a dam builder. This month it would be a door knocker. For those of you that were here, looks like everyone's shiner has healed up nicely after Randy's talk last week or last month. That was that was brutal. Um, being a door knocker is critical. Having an encounter with God's one thing, and a lot of guys stop there. I nearly stopped there. Being a door knocker leads to exactly what Whit's talking about in this weight series. To walk through a door that God opens, you've got to leave some things behind. For me, it required leaving some sin in my life that there was no room for on the other side of that door. It required me to leave some good things behind, some things I really enjoyed for some great things. You see, being a door knocker after you've had an encounter with Christ, it's something you do boldly. You do it with some confidence. You do it with the men you're pursuing God with. And what you expect is God to open doors. But it's not just opening any doors. It's opening, door, opening doors to clarity around what your purpose is in this season of your life. It's opening doors to fulfillment, understanding, peace, understanding what your identity is in Christ. You know what God's done for me over the last decade? Better than anything I could have asked for specifically. When I started asking those open, open-ended questions, seeking God corporately, individually meeting with him, having an encounter with him. God opened the doors to guys like Mark Delaney, Curtis Wilson, Pastor George's teaching, Dan Oski, men that are farther down the path in life than I am, that were compliments to my dad, and honestly filled in the gaps for me of what I didn't have in a dad, just because my dad wasn't there. We saw him every other weekend. But he also brought men, you know, several pastors at this church, just huge impacts in my life, mountain men guys sitting all over this room, um, and my childhood friends, you know, to, to know what we've been through, whole nother Friday morning talk, but the dynamics the four of us have been through and to still be different today just just mind-blowing. You know, God wants to open doors, He's, he does the hard stuff. We do the easy stuff, right? We do the natural stuff. But be a door knocker. When you have an intimate encounter with God, you can't help but boldly go knock on doors. You know, I, I know this is a little long-winded, but I am going to wrap up. You know, I could be easily sitting here in front of you today telling you a pretty sad story about how my parents got a divorce, didn't have my dad around much, made a lot of tough Made a lot of good decisions, had a lot of success, but kind of fell on my face. And uh, pretty empty life. You know, been through bankruptcy at a business. My wife delivered one of our children that never took a natural breath outside of the womb and buried that child a week later. I've been through some, some tough things, maybe not as tough as some of you guys have, but it'd be really easy for me to stand here today or be in a place today where I've done a lot but don't have a lot to show for it. And unsatisfied, maybe bitter, heartbroken, wish I had what some of you guys had. But thank goodness I started asking God some bigger questions. And I, I didn't know, I didn't, ask, seek, knock's not a process. You know, when you look at it in context of the Sermon on the Mount, this isn't a formula to get what you want. The reason Jesus says it, when, why, and how he says it, is to get what you need. He sets up Matthew five and six with some very tough asks, things that I would dare say we can't do on our own without Christ. Asking, seeking, knocking, it leads to intimacy with Christ. That's what you need. That's what you need to tackle life. The the tense of the words in how they were written are to be a continual thing. I believe they are one and the same, but they're progressive. They're depending on dependent on each other. And our I think the most convicting thing in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm closing with this, is in Matthew seven, twenty-one. This is the very end. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. My question for for us today is, do you know Jesus intimately? If you don't, all the other stuff, it's somewhat pointless. The good things I believe for have given me some superpowers to do the things I love for him. By intimately knowing Christ, God's been able to leverage all those good things to, to great things. But, What I would challenge us with today is climbing mountains, what I call the summit life, is a lot like walking with God. It's dangerous, it's risky, it's not meant to be done alone, but it's the only life worth living. Thanks for having me today.